This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A Ukrainian couple escaping the war talks about their harrowing journey to Canada. And it's the most frightening threat the West is contemplating. Would Vladimir Putin use nuclear weapons? But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. If you're planning a trip in the near future, make sure you have your documents ready. A surge in passport applications is leading to some lengthy wait times. According to Employment and Social Development Canada, processing time for a passport is five business days for those applying in person and 17 business days for those applying by mail. According to the department, 1.2 million passports have been issued since the start of April 2021 compared to just 363,000 the previous year. It's because of the pent-up demand for travel, and authorities expect another increase when the requirement for a negative COVID test is lifted April 1st. In the words of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Young people are just smarter. Well, not so fast. According to the latest science, he's downright wrong. A study by MIT and the U.S. Census Bureau found that the average age of those who founded the fastest-growing tech companies was 45, and that a 50-year-old is twice as likely to have massive success than a 30-year-old. According to the researchers, the same applies to sports, where some in their mid-40s find more success than those in their 20s. In tennis, for example, the most successful players are all in their mid-to-late 30s. A funeral home in Colorado laid to rest the state's first legally composted human remains, less than a year after the process was legalized as a greener alternative to cremation and traditional burial. The process of converting human bodies into soil is known as natural reduction. One body makes about a pickup truck bed's worth of soil. The law prohibits the soil of multiple people to be combined without their permission, for the soil to be used to grow food for human consumption or for it to be sold. Washington was the first state to legalize natural reduction. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Liana Markunina and Leonid Markunin are among the first Ukrainians to arrive in Canada since Russia invaded a month ago. Most who want to make the journey are still waiting for clearance, but the Markunins already had visitors' visas because they have two sons who live in Toronto. They'd been hoping to eventually immigrate here under the family reunification program. Instead, they fled their home in Odessa to escape Russian bombing. I talked with them and their translator, Victoria, about their harrowing journey. 
Leonid and Leanna, thank you so much for being with us. Can you tell us about your journey here? When did you arrive? My name is Leonid, and um, I'm 65 years old. I'm a retiree. Um, the war started uh, on 24th of February. At that time, we were in our home, and we uh, got contacted by a Jewish organization named Hesed, who were actually in touch with us earlier before. They were assisting us as a Jewish elderly couple, and we got contacted by this organization with an offer to help us to uh, get evacuated. We got a call that there will be a large bus that will be arranged on March 2nd, and uh, they put us on a list uh, for this bus to get evacuated. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've been trying to come here beforehand under family reunification, but they weren't chosen in the lottery system, right? Yes, that's correct. Do they have health issues? I don't have any medical issues. However, my wife, Liana, she's a breast cancer survivor. Ten years ago, she had chemotherapy sessions, and her health is not the best. Tell us about the journey. So you were able to get on this bus. Where did the bus take you, and, and how did you get from there to here? So on the March 2nd, we were told to be at the train station where the bus will be taking us from. There were a lot of people, a very big crowd. And we were told that the bus will be leaving at 11 o'clock. We came there one hour earlier. Just when we got there, the uh, air raid ride started, and everyone got very scared and ran to the shelter inside the train station building. And because of that, the bus that was supposed to come at 11 o'clock came five hours later. And all of them had to wait in the cold these five hours outside. And where did the bus take them and uh, what happened from there? There were eight buses that came and all people got on, on the buses. Nobody was left behind. The belongings that people were trying to, to get with them were squeezed into the buses, in between the seats, uh, above their heads, like everywhere. So the buses were rushing to cross the border because uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning, they start this military hour when the city gets locked. Nobody can get in or out. So the buses were really rushing so that they can cross the border before that happened. There were supposed to be only 58 kilometers drive. It was very close to the border station that called Palanka uh, in the direction of Moldova. However, the drive was extremely slow. Instead of a one-hour drive, it took four hours for them to get there because there were so many cars. People were walking by, by feet even. There are many, many times they were stopped. So this drive took much longer than it was expected. And then? When they got to Palanca Station, there were thousands and thousands of people with small children. Children were crying. It was so cold out there. And they were there around five hours in the cold, again, waiting to cross the, the actual border to uh, Moldova. And they had to get from Moldova to Bucharest, right? 
All this waiting at the Polanka station took six hours. When we crossed to Moldova, there were at the border volunteers who were offering hot meals and some hot drinks. When they crossed the border, they were said that uh, there will be a bus coming in hour and a half, but instead the buses came in five hours because the buses were expected in a minute. They also didn't get a chance to sleep, so they just were waiting for the buses. When the buses uh, finally came, they took them to Bucharest. When they arrived to Bucharest, they were uh, taken to the hotel, and this is, was actually the first time when they got to sleep in the bed after the three days journey. They could stay in the, this hotel for three days, and all the expenses for the hotel and the food that they were over there were paid by an organization called uh, Joint. And from there, already all these people who came um, together from this, on these eight buses, they were choosing who wants to go where, to uh, Italy, to Poland, to whoever had relatives. Their kids bought them tickets for a flight from Bucharest to Toronto, correct? Yes, they got on the plane that the tickets uh, their son bought for them. And... Are they here on that special designation for people fleeing Ukraine? They already had a visitor visa and their passports. That's why it kind of was easier for them to come. How are they finding it here? Are they staying with their sons? It is very difficult because their oldest son, his wife, relatives, uh, one family also came from Ukraine to stay with them. And his younger son, uh, he lives in a very, very small place and they're both working online. So it's very, very hard and very, very tight for all of them to stay in one place. Uh, But they uh, must be happy to be here? Or am I wrong? Yeah, there is no word to describe it, of course. It was always our dream to come to Canada and be with our son. It's very, very scary that we have to leave everything, everything behind. We're very scary to be with nothing, but we're happy to be with our sons, and we hope that Canada kind of can support us and help us. Thank you very much, and uh, all the best to you. That was Leona Markunina and Leonid Markunin with the story of how they managed to escape Ukraine and make their way to Canada. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the scariest question the West is grappling with. Would Vladimir Putin use nuclear weapons? You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. This week, Vladimir Putin's press secretary reiterated the Russian dictator's most potent threat, that he may resort to nuclear weapons. Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And, uh, well, it's public. You can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an 
existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Dmitry Peskov's comment had Western defense experts worrying about the true level of threat. I reached Michael Crapon, co-founder of the Stimson Center, a Washington think tank, and author of Winning and Losing the Nuclear Peace. It seems like the ultimate trump card. We have Putin and his minions saying they're willing to use nuclear weapons. And is that the thing that scares everyone else off? It's meant to scare everyone else off. I think the actual probability of Putin detonating a mushroom cloud in Ukraine is low, but it's not zero. And because the stakes are so high, it's important to reinforce a good calculus of decision from a guy who's made some pretty bad decisions. The consensus at the moment seems to be that he is really bogged down. I have to say that when I compare what I read from Americans versus Canadians, Americans are sort of more out there saying he's losing and the Ukrainians are winning. You know, when a big power wages war against a a weaker neighbor, uh, if the outcome is a stalemate, it's a loss for the big power. And I see this war as being extremely punishing for everybody, but I don't see Putin having a pathway to, um, to victory here. And the only reason, and it's a very bad reason, for him to use nuclear weapons is to try to secure gains and avoid further losses. But there are some pretty compelling reasons why that would be a bad decision. There is one theory out there that he is losing it and that he's sick either with cancer or Parkinson's and that's behind some of this. You know, I I don't think Botox is a sickness and I'm not willing to jump to that conclusion. We're looking at a guy who's gotten this far by being calculating and cunning and not by being crazy. I think his nuclear threats are purposeful, uh, and I think they're intended as we begin this conversation with the message of backing off from supporting Ukraine to defend itself. I don't think NATO is going to back off. I do think we're going to continue to try our best without directly intervening to make sure that Putin doesn't win. So what then becomes of his nuclear threats? Would he really carry them out? Would he become the 21st century equivalent of Adolf Hitler? Would he turn a loss into a victory by using nuclear or chemical weapons? I don't think so. But I do think it's important for us to clarify the reasons 
why using these horrific weapons would result in just a terrible outcome for Putin personally and for Russia. What about this increasing targeting of civilians, increasing carnage, targeting humanitarian aid? I mean, doesn't this require a more fulsome response? It is the Russian way of war, and it compensates for so many weaknesses. These are crimes against humanity. And it poses a tremendous moral dilemma for us. It's our job, it's our obligation to help people defend themselves. It is not wise to start World War III. And I think we're capable, NATO leadership is capable of threading this needle. Uh, and one way to prevent World War III is to clarify how much the use of a nuclear or chemical weapons by Putin in Ukraine would backfire. And there are many ways that it would backfire. There's no good result that comes from using a nuclear weapon for the first time in three quarters of a century. Okay, thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. You take care. That was Michael Crapon, co-founder of the Stimson Center. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. And be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.